Yeah, just yeah, guys, you go to Bible class over there, you get to see your brand new room. I got a big surprise coming for you. I ain't going to tell you what it is, but boy, in a couple weeks or so, you're going to really like what Pastor Bob's going to do for you. I don't really like Pastor Bob. Uncle Bob's going to do for you. Uh, just to give you an update, I just, I just took an eyeball out there. You know, we're great on the parking. We've still got parking places out there, and we've never really swamped the places around us, and the two funeral homes really helped out. So, you know, and, and always, you know, we just, you know, we appreciate you working with us, and you young singles, you know, you got the wherewithal to, you know, and not only you like to walk down, it's a wonderful walk, but uh, when it's bad weather out, we'll be there to pick you up. But anyway, so last week... <clears throat> We were in John chapter 8, verse 44, if you remember, and we looked at a great <clears throat> passage with <clears throat> one of the great verses that will, you know, lead us into many different studies. And John chapter 8, verse 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode in the truth, not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. Uh, he's a liar and the father of him, and, uh, you know, it was a great verse that we looked at that really uh, uh, talked about the fact that there's no truth in him. And we kind of based everything on verse 44 last week, even though <clears throat> as we move down through this passage, we're going to talk about some other things. Immediately, we saw the connection back to Genesis chapter 4 with a great story of Cain and Abel. And, you know, based on those two passages in John 8 and John Genesis 4, we developed a number of things about Cain uh, that we could study literally forever and just never lose sight of them. You know, there were just too many things. First of all, we saw that Cain is uh, our first type of the Antichrist in the Bible. So you can take that and go with it. He's guys a mark, just like the Antichrist does. Last week, we, we really focused on the fact that how he's a picture of an unsaved man. And we'll talk about that some more today. And then lastly, and little known to most people, uh, that he is a type of the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, that got rid of Christ just like he got rid of Abel. And then I showed you not only do you have those three ways to study it, but then I, we know in our Bible studies from past about the law of first mention. How does the first time you find something in the Bible, it pretty much defines itself, and you can use that through the rest of the Scriptures. So we saw that in the story of Cain and Abel, <clears throat> we have our first set of twins in the Bible, and we talked about how you figure that out. Also, we have the word sin for the first time uh, in dealing in this story. He was the first murderer in the Bible. And he is the first one who sears his conscience in the Bible. He is the first man who, we're told, leaves the presence of the Lord. And he's the first man in the Bible to build a city. So now you have nine different ways that you can study this guy uh, and different studies. And, man, you could spend... Many, 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 many months uh, on laying all that out and, and unearth a lot of information. We looked at these two boys, Cain and Abel, and we began to look at their first of their occupations. And then the offering based on their occupations that they brought to the Lord. Um, 
Abel was a, was a keeper of sheep. He tended a flock. And when he brings his sacrifice, he often brings the firstlings of his flock, obviously a lamb. And he sheds that blood for an offering to God, uh, which goes right in line with everything throughout the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we see that analogy starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, on the other hand, who's a picture of an unsaved man, he's a farmer. He tills the ground. And I showed you last week that if you got a trained eye, you already know that something isn't going to be right here because the ground's got a curse on it. So he's trying to get something to give to God that God will accept that's already cursed. And of course, he brings his fruit and vegetables in, and, and as the story goes on, God had respect unto Abel's offering for the obvious reasons, but he didn't have respect unto Cain and his offering. And this is because their offerings represent the two types of people in the Bible and people in life. There's one person, many of you, most of you, probably hopefully all of you, you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. Long story short, you realize that your fruits and vegetables couldn't cut it with God. The works of our flesh, the things that we do, will not merit our salvation. You had to have somebody innocent die and shed the blood for you, and that's how you got saved. Unsaved people, many, many times, will look for their works. And as I gave you last week, not by works of righteousness as we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. And uh, so you find that Cain and Abel represent the two kinds of people you're going to find on planet Earth in life. One of them are going to come to God and take his sacrifice, the other one is going to reject God's sacrifice and think that their righteousness is as good as God's son's righteousness. When the Bible clearly says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. So you can see how this thing really lays itself out. Then we got a really good look at an unsaved man and unfortunately a saved man many times who will develop an attitude against the heart of God, God's truth. We think that unsaved people are the only ones that have a problem with God's word. That's not true. Many of God's people have the same problem that unsaved people have, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here. And how, you know, he, uh, his hatred for the word of God, Cain's, for truth, actually led to him killing his own brother and then lying about it to God. And we talked about that great confrontation, and we'll touch on that a little bit later again. And just like unsaved people and saved people today, um, they, they don't understand God's judgment. Cain killed his brother. God, in my estimation, and there's a reason for this, was pretty lenient on him as far as, you know, the punishment and then, you know, Cain, like everybody in the world today, every liberal and everybody that hates God and hates God's word, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5 says that an unsaved man does not understand God's judgment. And that's so true today. And so then Cain, he leaves the presence of God. You never hear from him again, other than a couple of verses in the New Testament that make a reference to him, but he's gone. He's off the stage. Cain has left the building, and there's no more do you find him mentioned in the Bible in a direct way. Bible says he takes a wife, and he builds a city. He takes a wife. 
the question I've been asked more than any other question in all of the Bible in the history of my tenure in the ministry is, where did Cain get his wife? People seem to be occupied with that. I always tell them, he got his wife the same way you got yours, courting. You know, he met a woman, he took her out for a soda and a cheeseburger at McDonald's, and, and, and that's how he met her, and then they got married. And, of course, the obvious thing is the story in the Bible only talks about these two boys. Most people don't know that from Genesis chapter 3, now keep in mind, Adam and Eve are told to have kids, and the Bible says for 800 years they continue to have children. I know, lady over here just fainted. But it's a thing where, <laughs> but it's a thing where uh, you know, so you got to remember. And then the other thing, if you follow Usher's chronology, which is the chronology that we all accept, if you follow the other aspect of it, you will know that from Genesis chapter 3, when they're kicked out of the garden, to Genesis chapter 4, where the story of Cain and Abel take place, there's about 225 years later. Uh, according to Usher's chronology, which is the true Bible chronology. So a lot of things are happening, but the Bible's only focusing on this one story, and people sometimes don't step back and look at the whole panoramic of the Bible and what's happening. They just get focused on that one little story. So by the time he's ready to find him a woman, there's plenty of them around. And uh, he builds this city, and of course I call this the Babylon Connection because it's from Cain when he builds this city that in time then moves into being, uh, to being Babylon. So today, let's pick it back up in John chapter 8, verse 44 through 47 again, and let's read it. And it says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. Now, Father, we ask you to open up our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the great last couple of days and, and this church that you've given us. And Lord, um, all the things that we can do, not only here, but uh, reaching out and evangelizing our neighborhood with all the plans we have for that. And then all the young men and young ladies that I want to begin to really use, the older guys and ladies to train them. That we really, really now have our place where we can do a real, have a central location to reach the world. And Lord, I know that sounds facetious from a little church this size, but Lord, you know we're literally all over the world on our broadcast and, and people are following where they can't find churches and they can't find a Bible. They, they're finding us. Over 1,500 of them at the last count that just follow us and are getting the truth. And we just thank you for that. And pray, Father, that we continue to build the base here of men and women, moms and dads, who want to really be everything that God wants them to be. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now we're going to look at another great verse today, and we're going to have another great lesson. And it's found in verse 45. And here's what he says. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Now, my job is to get all of you to the point where you help me in ministry. 
And I know that that's a, that's a great expectation of mine, and not everybody probably will ever do that, but I'll get my fair share of you. And my job is through the, my ministry and what I've done and the people that come in to help you help me with people and build people's lives as, 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 as we do. And you're going to learn very quickly in dealing with people that some people, and this is true of lost people, but it's also true of saved people, will not want anything to do with the truth. And the sooner you grasp that, the better off you're going to be. I know that sounds like it's impossible. How could anybody, how could anybody who, you know, got really truly saved and born again uh, not want truth? Well, believe me, it happens. And you're going to learn that very quickly as you move through uh, life and, and everything that's going on and everything that the Lord um, is going to do with you. And uh, they don't want to apply truth. And this is what you find. When they come to church and they hear truth, they will always, and we're all guilty of this, we always will hear a message and will apply what we hear to the wrong things in our life. We'll kind of put the things that need to be fixed over here and then thank God for the things that don't need to be fixed. Or we'll look at somebody else and say, I really hope they got that out of that sermon today. Well, I hope you get that out of the sermon today. But that's what, that's what people do. And you're going to realize that applying truth uh, where it doesn't need to go and then not applying it where it does need to go is, you know, what we, uh, what we, don't, uh, we, we do all the time. And in the world that we live in, and I don't have to explain this to anybody, in the world that we live in as Christians, believe me, all we have is the truth of God's word. There is no truth in this world. There's no truth in this country. There's no truth in anything in this country. You can't trust anything anybody tells you other than what you find in the Word of God. And the world, uh, you know, is, the world is never going to give us the truth. In any way, shape, or form is the world ever going to provide for us the truth. And you see it all the time. And a man or a woman will reject truth uh, where they're, and, it, and it shows where they're really at with God. You're going to find that many times a husband and wife will reject the truth that they get through preaching of the failed marriage that they're in or the struggle that they're having. They just blow it off. Like, it's good for somebody else, but we don't want to fix our problem. Or many times the wife does, the husband doesn't, or the husband does and the wife doesn't. But that's what you find. You're going to find that uh, many times a parent or parents will reject the truth of where their children are really at. And uh, they just will not look at their own family and their kids and see uh, where they're at and realize that truth needs to be applied. And it's the fundamental reason in, in all cases of rejecting truth. It'll always be that truth will always lead to conviction. Like we saw with the guys, with the woman that they brought in adultery. The truth of God's word will always lead to conviction. But real biblical conviction, now listen to me, will always lead to change. And there lies the problem. You reject the conviction because deep down inside, for whatever reason, we don't want to change. And we see this like in the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and also with our old buddy Cain. They don't want to change. And uh, I want to tell you something, and of course, 
you already know a lot of this, but there's a real danger in getting too comfortable with your sin. You've got to come to the place where you've got to keep that on the short list. And uh, so the first thing that you're going to learn about verse 45 is that about truth, people are not going to believe you. You're going to work with somebody. You're going to tell them you need to fix this or you need to fix that. You need to change this or you need to change that. And they're simply not going to do it because they don't believe you. So that's the first thing. The second thing when you give somebody the truth about verse 44 is that giving people the truth many times will make them your enemy. You see this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, when Paul was dealing with that church. They had gotten messed up with a group of people that were trying to take them back under the Old Testament. Basically, well, you can trust Christ, but you also got to go back under the law. And Paul, in that whole book, is dealing with them. And Paul, to the Galatians, you know, who had gotten messed up on bad doctrine, he says to them in 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Obviously he had. And you're going to find that in dealing with people. Now, I I am just telling you, if you're going to work with people, my suggestion to you, if you are not thick-skinned already, is go down to your local surplus store or police military place and buy you a bulletproof vest. Because you're going to need one. Because you cannot deal with people and be in a constant emotional flux state of what people think about you. Because truth that you have, that you want to give to others, will not always be accepted as truth or as good. And to me, it's always been an incredible phenomenon. It really has. And you see it in any church. You know, a person or a family comes to a church and gets in and gets the Bible. The kids get involved. The parents get involved. They'll come to camp. They'll do this. They'll do that. They'll, they'll, they'll get involved in discipleship. And they'll, they'll go to that church for maybe a year, two years, three years, four years. I don't know, maybe five years. And they love it. You know, they'll talk about how oh, we love it here and this is a great place and great Bible and great teaching and, and uh, you know, and then one day it all changes. They drink out of the wrong drinking fountain. They drink out of the drinking fountain that changes their attitude about the truth of God's Word, I guess. Now, we're a cult. Now the church is full of bad people. Now you're mad. Certainly your countenance has changed. It's fallen. Now I'm a terrible pastor. You're terrible people. We have terrible teaching. And now, how do you explain that? I had a lady one time, and I really liked this lady, and I liked her husband too. They came to our church for a while, she was, she was in pretty good shape spiritually. He was the nicest guy on the planet, but he was as spiritual as a doorknob. He cared nothing about God and the Bible. But they came to church here, and she told me this. They decided to go to another church. 
because he didn't like it here. And so she did like it here, but he did. And it, him and I are really good friends to this day, and I, I really like him a lot. And she said to me, she said, you know, she says, I asked him what was wrong with this church. And he says, well, I don't like the preaching. And she says, well, what does he preach that's wrong? He says, nothing. <laughs> now, that sums it up. You see, some people just can't take the truth of what the Word of God says. Now, I appreciate him and his honesty. Nine out of ten other people would have blamed you, blamed me, blamed the church, were called down. He didn't do that. He just simply said, I don't want to go there anymore because he preaches the truth and I don't want the truth. I, I can understand that. I appreciate that. Just go out to dinner together. I'm good with that. Now, you've got to keep in mind with these folks, nothing has really changed. It's always been a, an amazing thing to me that you have any church of 200 people one person gets a nosebed on a joint because of truth, and now they're right, and the other 999 of the people in their church are not right. It's a, it's a natural thing that you see all the time. And yet, I mean, it's the same preaching. No doctrinal things have changed. It's the same ministry. It's the same people working and helping people. It's the same everything. Nothing has changed. It's even the same truth. Now, there's the problem. And, you know, I've always wanted when somebody that's here, that's part, and we don't change the teaching, and then they leave here and they say, you know, well, it's a cult. I always would like, and I wouldn't do this, because, it, it, but I would like to give them back on Thursday night. And I, I only need a 10 minutes, and I'll give them the whole thing to explain to everybody there where this church is a cult. They don't even know what a cult is. Now, if I show up next week and I'm a Jehovah Witness, now I'm a cult. If I become a moron, I'm a cult. A Mormon, I'm a cult. But you know what? The things that we teach, you can go all the way back to the church history and the Waldensians and the Albadensians, and we preach the same thing. But you see, there's sometimes in God's people's lives when the other person just has to be wrong so you can be right. And you need to learn these things. And then the second thing you learn is don't take it personal. You don't go out and stamp it around with a sign or get a t-shirt that says, I am not a cult. You just keep on doing what God has called you to do because those people are always going to be there. And the quicker you can get past that and realize and not take it personal, the better off you're going to be. It's just life in the big ministry. And, of course, the key is the truth. The same truth that will make you free is the same truth that will give you a bad attitude when you reject it. And you see this in Genesis chapter 4. Nothing in the church has changed. It's the same truth being preached. You changed. The person has changed. The truth of the Word of God hits your sweet spot. It's like going to the dentist and you don't know for sure what tooth is hurting. So he says, well, I'll find it. It's the last thing you want to hear from your dentist. <laughs> so he gets his little probe thing there and he starts going, it isn't this one, it isn't this one, it isn't this one. And when he hits the one it is, everybody in the building knows he found that tooth. 
That's the way preaching is. I can preach a message, you know, and you out there, amen, praise the Lord, I like this. But when I hit your sweet spot, then you begin to have a problem, you see. Uh, and that's just, the, that's just the way it works. And you will notice three different patterns emerge in a situation like this, and you want to learn these things. Number one, a person can get saved and can grow and enjoy everything about the truth, and you'll go along for a long time, you'll come, you'll get discipled, you'll hear preaching, and then the Holy Spirit of God, not me, not the people you're working with, the Holy Spirit of God will begin to focus on issues in your life that you need to work on, and it'll come up. I won't bring it up directly because I don't even know. Uh, The people that you're working with won't bring it up unless you tell them they don't even know. But the Holy Spirit of God knows. And he focuses through the truth of the Word of God because he wants to perfect us. And the problem is he wants to perfect us. We only want to be perfected so far. And when we get to that point, then we start having a problem. And truth of the Word of God is your real issue when it comes up and you refuse to deal with it. And so... You're not going to get up on Sunday morning or tell your people you're working with or tell me, hey, look, I hate truth, so I'm not going to be here anymore. You're going to pass it off just like Cain did. You're going to pass it off like Adam did when God said uh, what happened to Eve. And he says, well, the woman you gave me, see? Now, number two. When I, and I, I, I give people the benefit of the doubt because I understand things, but I, there are, in dealing with people, there are some red flags that you don't ever, you just watch. And the second thing that you're going to find people when it comes to truth is what? Now, this is your, your third, your fourth, or your fifth church you've been in. You last about two years, and then you get mad about something, and you go someplace else. This is a definite pattern. You come to any church, you enjoy it for a while, but at some point, real issues that you won't deal with come up, and and then now, you know, in every church you've been to, it's always been somebody else's fault. Now, I know that there are bad churches out there. I get that. But I'm going to tell you, when somebody starts to sit down, and which has happened many, many times, and I never say anything, I just listen, but they'll tell me about the last five churches they've been in, and I know these guys that are in these churches, and some of these guys may be idiots, but I know they're not capable of what that person is saying there is. And I'm telling you what it is, it's truth. It's truth. Truth will bring you to a point in your life where... Uh, uh, you know, you're, uh, and then the next church you go to will soon be the last church that you came from when you're looking for another one. That's the way it works. Some things never change with people, and the pattern is so clear. Then the third thing is the fact that you get into sin. We saw it last week in Genesis 4, verse 7. God told Cain, hey, look, do what's right, and if you don't, sin lieth at the door. And I told you, there's two doors we go through as Christians. You go through the door of opportunity, or you go through the door of this world. 
And some of God's people bless their heart. The pull of the world just pulls them back. They don't get in. They don't get discipled. They don't get where they need to be. They don't begin to grow the way they should. Obviously, sometimes they don't deal with the issues like we talked about that need to be. I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> you go out and look at the moon tonight when it's really up there. It's beautiful. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the moonlight and all that stuff is just, it's just beautiful. If you take a pair of binoculars and you look at the moon in a pair of binoculars, it's still beautiful. It's big and it's bright. You got the different seas and the, all the, this out there and the plains. and it's great. You get a telescope that it can magnify it about 100 times and you look at the moon, you can, you can begin to see now that the moon is not perfect. You get a telescope that you can get five, 600 times magnified, you're going to see a junk pile. You're going to see jagged craters, beer cans, cigarette butts. You're going to see cracks and crevices, and that place looks like some place that you never want to be. But as long as you look at it from the naked eye or a pair of binoculars, it looks wonderful. You know, our lives are the same way. When you come to the church, any church, that Bible you have in your line becomes your telescope. Not the telescope to look at everybody else, the telescope to look at you. And the more you get in that Bible, the more God cranks up the magnification. And right now, and this is a true thing, you, some of you just coming to church here now and getting involved and, and you're happy and you, you're thinking to yourself, man, I, 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 I'm really in a good place. And you are. But you know as you get into that Bible and God kind of cranks down the magnification of yourself, you're going to see more imperfections, impurities. You're going to see some cracks and some crevices. You're going to see some craters. You're going to see some scars. You're going to see some things as you get into that book, excuse me, as that book gets into you. And you're going to see more things now that expose to you what needs to be fixed. Now, here's the question. Are you willing to fix them or you're not? Are you willing to let the Word of God do what God intended it to do, and that is to perfect you? Help you be better. Make you better. Take all of those issues that you're struggling with. And, you know, the world's answer is go to psychiatry or get on medicine or do this, you know, and dull your brain out and all that stuff. And I really hate, I'm on medicine for my medical problems. Everybody is, the older you get. But I'll never be on medicine for depression. Because the greatest medicine for your depression is this book right here. Take two of these and call me in the morning. And uh, it'll fix any problem you have. I mean, I don't know what any Christian goes through in life, but whatever you go through will nothing be what Paul went through. Nobody here was put in jail. Nobody was whipped and beat. Nobody was beat up and left for dead and thrown over the wall. Nobody. Nobody was hounded all of your life by people who wanted to kill you. And you know what? I've been through this book a few times. I've never found the name of his therapist. I had a lady one time tell me, well, I disagree. I think that they had herbal drugs back then. Yeah, I can just see Paul walking down the road to Damascus chewing on a big leaf for his anxiety. No, no. He gives us the verses that will fix any problem we have. Do you know why? Because they're the verses that fix the problems that he went through. He said, whatever state I am in, they're with to be condemned. That's a tough one. 
You say, well, I'm depressed. Or, yeah, then be content with it. Boop around. Be content. Be happy. I'm happy I'm depressed. I mean, he said whatever state I'm in, what are you complaining about? The bottom line is you don't have to be that way. You know why? Because greater is he that's in you that's in the world. You don't need to be in a, in a downward spiral in life. You ought to be spiraling upward. But you know what? You've not yet learned how to take the Bible and apply it to fix those things. We'll teach you that here. We'll help you. And I'm telling you, you, you get the same victory that Paul had. You get the same victory that, that, every, every, that every Christian had. I mean, you go down through history, you think, where do you, where do you think the Waldensians who were butchered and murdered for their faith, or the Albigensians, or all those Bible-believing groups that paid for the faith that they had by being tortured, and where do you think they got their comfort? It wasn't from Xanax. It was from that book right there. Because that book will heal you. It's called The Bomb of Gilead. You put it on your ouchie where it hurts. But it'll fix you. It'll fix you. So the third thing is he gets it, you, people get into sin. They go through the wrong door. They got sidetracked. They get out of the book. And I've seen this happen more and more. You know, some young guy, some young gal comes to church and they really get plugged in. And then the devil, God wants you to grow. The devil wants to stop your growth. So what does he do? Oh, you meet some lovely girl someplace or some old girlfriend crawls out of the attic or you beat some guy or this or that. And immediately now, God has to fight for your affections. And I'm telling you, you put a beautiful woman in your life or a good-looking guy in your life as a young Christian and you got to decide between God or them, God's going to lose every time till you learn what's really important. And in any and all cases, it comes down to rejecting the truth that it will make you free and then going back under the bondage of the world. And it's your choice. It's depending on what door you go through. And now you're just like the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. You hate truth. You see, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees, they hated truth at the first coming, so they had to get rid of Christ. God's people at the second coming hate truth, so they got to get rid of the book. And in the same, that things never change. You know, in this whole story about Cain and Abel and all this stuff, you know what the bottom line is? A person doesn't hate the church. They don't hate the pastor. They don't hate the people. You hate the truth. It's just the fact that you're not man enough or woman enough to man up to it, so you got to blame it on somebody else. You don't want to face your hidden issues. Cain is our pattern. Now, now, now mark this. Cain didn't kill Abel because he hated him. You all get that. Cain didn't kill Abel because he hated him. He killed Abel because Abel reminded him of the truth that he should have done and he didn't do. He didn't really hate him. No more than they'll hate you. No more than they'll hate me. The bottom line is they hate truth. And many times you, when you do what's right with the Word of God, you remind people who don't want to do what's right of what they should do. So they'll come after you just like he went after Cain. He hated him and he killed him. 
Not because he hated him, because he represented the truth. And every time he saw Cain, or Abel, and Abel's over there, you know, watching his sheep, singing, I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Praising the Lord, standing up there saying, Lord, what a wonderful day this is today. It's beautiful. Cain was over there, and that's what got him to kill his brother. It wasn't that he hated him. He didn't love him one day as his brother and hate him the next. What changed him? Truth. The rejection of truth. One man kept the truth and followed it. The other man rejected it and went through the wrong door. And the guy that went through the wrong door killed the other man because he hated the truth that he stood for. You better get that one. People will hate the truth that you stand for and they'll come after you. And you know what? You've got to be okay with that. You've got to be okay with that. Now, as I said, you see this in Cain's life. And it will match up to lost people and saved people. And you've got to remember, saved people may be saved, but they can act just like an unsaved person. And, of course, the great passages on that that we've explained in Bible study many times is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And then the true great ones will be 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And then, of course, compared out to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 26. There's where you see how that works. Now, I've said a lot about getting the right attitude of heart in loving God, in loving God's heart. And last Thursday night in our Bible study, uh, I answered probably one, if not the greatest question I've ever had in Bible study at a Song of Solomon. And that is the relationship that we have. And I went through basically and gave you a synopsis of the book of Song of Solomon. And now you can see and understand how it really lays out and how it applies to where uh, we are at. An incredible thing about our relationship. And there's a biblical process to get to that point in our lives. Your personal intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is laid out chapter by chapter in an incredible way in the book of Song of Solomon. But building a right attitude based on you having the right spirit and toward the heart of God, Christ in you and the Word of God sealed in you, then in time you get the mind of God like we talk about, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How shall he instruct you? You have the mind of Christ. You know how that goes, Philippians 2.5 and 1 Corinthians 2.16. Once you get that mind, then you'll develop an attitude toward God's heart and you'll begin to see everything from his perspective. Everything now you look at, you will see from his vantage standpoint, how he sees it, why he sees it that way. And when you apply that to your world and you cease looking at it from your own way and you look at it from his way, now you're ready to really build that relationship with the Lord. And what happens now, and you've heard me talk about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, and people have been asking me to explain it on Thursday, so I told them I was going to do it today, put it into the message here. And it comes to the point in your life where you learn to love the things that God loves, and then you learn to hate the things that God hates. Now, the Christian life doesn't get any simpler than that. 
It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's simply you and me putting the Word of God in our lives, getting the church in our lives, getting everything that God has for us, and then coming away through a process that we'll help you with that you learn what God loves. And you make those things the things that you love. And then you learn the things that God hates. And you stay away from them. Now there's seven things that God loves. Talked about in your Bible. And uh, you know this is, you know I've always go back to the, the, the Apostle John. When he got God's heart. He got God's heart literally by leaning over and listening to it beat in his chest there in John. And he heard the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God is Jesus Christ. Now, when you got saved, you get God's heart through Christ taking up residency inside your body. Now you have the ability where you didn't have before through Christ in you. That new heart God gave you, to love what God loves. You know the first thing that God loves? It's truth. And all you got to do is read Psalms 119, verses 1 through 176. 76 verses. Uh, excuse me, 176 verses. Every one of them deals with a different way to love God's Word about some aspect. Incredible. Incredible. The first thing that God loves is He loves truth. You know the second thing that He loves? He loves righteousness. So when you put truth in your life, it's going to lead to your righteousness, getting saved. And then after you're saved, it's going to, you're going to continue in that righteousness. Psalms 45, 7 says, Thou loveth righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He's talking about Christ. Christ and God love righteousness. I'll tell you the second, the third thing. He loves souls. John 3.16, familiar. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in it shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commended His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves your soul today. He loved your soul enough to die for you. And when you received the truth, that's how you got saved. And the tragedy is, unfortunately, many of God's people loved him to get saved, but then because of things happening that they don't want to fix in their life, then they go back to not wanting the truth in their life. I'll tell you the fourth thing he loves. He loves his church. The book of Ephesians is the book that tells you about the church. In fact, the book of Ephesians is the Song of Solomon in the New Testament. And he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for it. Do you love the church? See, these are the things that you should love. <clears throat> now, I never, I, I never, you know, I never, again, you got pastors out there, you know, that they think you need to be, if you're not in church every Sunday, you know, there's something wrong with you. Uh, and, of course, uh, that just doesn't work. You have to have vacations. I tell our guys going out deer hunting. I, I, you know, some of our guys, John and Bubba and Donnie and, some of the other guys, they were over here working Thursday night hard and so they could get it done. And then they went down and they hunt on their property and were hunting deer down there. I, I, I told them before they left, I pulled them aside and said, you guys go have a good time. Don't shoot each other, but have a good time. <laughs> uh, if you shoot anybody, shoot Bubba, but have a good time. <clears throat> Don't tell him I said that. And it's a thing where I want them to have a good time. They work hard. 
They support this church. They're part of this church. I'm not threatened by the fact that some one of my people are going to go down and go deer hunt. Or you like to go fishing on a fishing trip. You know what? Because it's not the one thing that you do you don't do. What really determines <clears throat> where you're at and how much you love the church is how much you are part of it. Not the time you went down and went deer hunting for a week. It's, it's, it's the other 360-some days of the year holding up this ministry, doing what you do. And you know what? That's, that's, that's where it's at. You know, you you gotta have you know this. You gotta have people to have downtime. They gotta decompress. The many of their jobs are tough. They're hard. They're under great pressure. They need to just get out when it's a legitimate thing to get out. And I'm telling you, but they don't have a problem with loving the church because when deer season's over, they'll be back and they'll be doing everything they need to do. They fix everything here. They help us here. We, didn't, we wouldn't have had this building if it wasn't been for the guys that, uh, that knew what they were doing and, and, and came in and, and looked it all over and said, yeah, this and that, and this will work or this will work, or when we had inspectors come through, that they, you know, that they went through with the inspectors because I don't know what I'm looking at, and they know all these things. You know, and they, they, they just, everything that they do, you know why they do it? Because they love this church. This church is their home. So they do it. You know, I mean, Steve Brackeen, he worked with everything and helping get it all together. Terry Job spent, I don't know how many days over here this week working out all the air conditioning and the heating stuff. Why do they do that? I ain't paying them. Well, give me a bill. <laughs> they love this church. Trent and his wife was over here. I come out yesterday and they're mowing the grass. Who mows the grass in November? I don't. I cut it as short as I can by the end of October. <laughs> and God just miraculously keeps them little stubbles down till, till May. I, but why? Why? I mean, you got a lawn business. You probably, I know you were here all week working in with me, and then you do all your other stuff. Why? Because they love this church. Why did you all come out and help? I know I kept your long hours. I know we worked hard. I know it got crazy at some point. Why? Because you love this church. Why are you here this morning? Why, after the horrendous time, didn't you say, I, I need a break, I'm going to go? Why are you here? And you're all excited. Because you love the church. Because we understand. And I realize the church is not this building. This is where the church, real church, meets. But it's our place where we meet with God and disperse truth. Okay? And you love that because you love truth. And you can't beat that. And you know why you do? You love the things that God loves. You love the church. That God loves his, his own son. He said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, this is my beloved son, Hear ye him. He loves his son. Oh, does he ever. But he loved you more than he loved his own son because he was willing to give his son for you and for me that we might become his sons. Wow. Then the sixth thing he loves <coughs> is the city of Jerusalem. And all you got to do is read Ezekiel 16, 17, and 18 to get that one down. 
You see, there's something special about Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem will be the holiest spot on earth in the millennium. It was the holiest spot on earth in the Old Testament. It isn't holy at all now. Different kingdom. People talk about going to the Holy Land. You've got to wait till the millennium start to do that. There's nothing holy about it over there now. I mean, yes, historically it's where Jesus walked, and I get it, and you want to go through all those things and look at all things, you know, and you'll pay good money, and the Arabs will take you one place that he was buried, the Jews will take you another place, and all they do, when they take you both places, they're really just taking your money. You know where Jesus is coming back right now at the Mount of Olives? You know that the Muslims have the Dome of the Rock there now? That's all going to change here pretty quickly. But it ain't going to be there when he steps down. You know, that's where David bought the threshing floor from that guy back there, and then he built the temple on that spot. Now the Muslims got it, the devil's got it. So what's holy about that? Not a thing. You see, you got to get your dispensations correct. But that city... Every war on this planet for the last 6,000 years, every conflict and everything that's ever happened will go back to that city fundamentally. And that's been a battleground between God and the devil. It's what the Crusades were all about. It's what everything in history was about. It's what Constantine was about. It's what the, everything in it's what World War I and World War II was about. Everything goes back to that city because that city in time it's not only going to be the holiest spot on the earth, it's going to be the holiest spot in the whole universe. He loves that city. He loved it so much when Jesus come back and they rejected his truth. What did he do? He cried there, men cried, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It broke his heart that that city rejected him because he loved that city. Then I'll tell you the last thing that he loves is the nation of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 says, The Lord appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He's talking about the nation of Israel. They're his people. And when you get that all set, then that sets it up Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10 for you and me, and then Romans chapter 11 for the restoration of Israel, and we put it all into perspective. See, these are the seven things that he loves. Unfortunately, most of God's people don't even know what they are. It's impossible for them to love the things that God loves because they don't even know what they are. But then you have the seven things that God hates. Now this will be found in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, 17, 18, and 19. Now the trained eye, if you're looking at this, says here, now these six things doth the Lord hate. And then there's six things, and it's in verse 16. So right out of the chute, we got 666 showing up. Six things, verse 6, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Proverbs 6. So now we automatically see that this is not going to be very good. And he says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. He takes six, separates the seven. 
You know, he did that back in Genesis when he did the six days and then he separated and rested the seventh. There's a reason why he does things like that. We don't have time to get into it today. Then he starts to list them. Proud look. Lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now let's look at these quickly. And here are the seven things that God hates. Now, I'm ashamed to say this. Most of God's people never get the first seven down, but for some reason they really get these down. These here are the sins of the saints. And I say that with a broken heart today. I say that because most of God's people today, <clears throat> they know more and follow more with the things that God hates than the things that God loves. Hey, don't, don't listen to this crazy old man up here. Let's do this. Let's take the test. Want to take the test? <clears throat> Find it if you got... <clears throat> I'm not worried about you getting COVID-19. I'm worried about you getting 666. Proud look. You know, that's the first sin you find in the Bible. Everybody thinks the first sin in the Bible is Adam and Eve. No, you're wrong. First sin in the Bible, back in Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 4, long before Adam and Eve. You know what it was? It was pride. It was a proud look. It was Lucifer lifting up himself above the throne of God and trying to overthrow him because of his pride. And this is in all of our lives. When sin will start, everybody in this room, every person you ever met, where sin fundamentally starts in our hearts against God will be exactly where it started with Lucifer, your pride. Your pride will keep you from doing what's right. Your pride will keep you from loving somebody that maybe is unlovable. Your pride will keep you from ever being and doing all that God wants you to do. You know why? Because you get an attitude of pride. And an attitude of pride will not go against the person. It will not go against anything other than God's word and his truth. When a man or a woman gets into sin, it will always start with the pride against God's heart, God's truth. The Word of God. And of course, uh, the number one sin listed that God hates will be pride. Cain, he had a proud look. He was upset when his countenance fell. It went from the joy, joy, joy of a relationship with God to a prideful attitude that he was upset with God's truth, even though God gave him alternatives that he didn't have to stay in that condition. He got a proud look, got a proud spirit, will always separate you from God. And that's where when we have sin, that's where when you come to a service, maybe you're here right now and the Holy Spirit of God deals with you and you throw him out the window because of pride. Pride will always keep you from being convicted and conviction is the only way you're ever going to change. Second thing, lying tongue. Now, let's put this in a practical standpoint here. Once you get your pride involved, then you begin to think you're somebody you're not. 
you begin to think that you're okay when you're not. You now begin to think that you're right and everybody else is wrong. And you have to lie to keep that illusion going. People get it all wrong. Our lies are not to other people. Though they are. But first and foremost, when we lie, our lies are not to other people. Our lies are right to ourselves. Because we have rejected the conviction. A great verse that I, is one of my favorite verses, and I use it a lot, is found in Job chapter 9, verse 6. It says, talking about God, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. That's God. And then it's to us. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? You know what the answer is to that? Nobody. Not a person. But we lie to ourselves and we think we can beat God, don't we? You know why? You know why we don't get right and why we don't do things we're supposed to do fundamentally against the truth of God? Because deep down inside we think we can beat the odds. We think that we're so special and so wise and so masterful with words and so masterful with all of this stuff that we can actually get around God and His truth. Boy, you are fooling yourself. Nobody has ever prospered going against Him. Nobody ever has. Nobody ever will. But we like to think we lie to ourselves and we think, I can do it. Then the third thing, hands that shed innocent blood. You know, we talk about the term, the blood is on your hands or the blood is on our hands. And yet, when you've talked to people about, you know, you talk to people about not, uh, about getting saved, they'll always throw up, well, I never murdered anybody. I never killed anybody. I never murdered anybody. Yet the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You find a lot of God's people that just hate people. And they think they're okay with that. But the bottom line is, all you've just admitted is you're a multitasking murderer. We don't have a right to hate anybody. We hate sin. We hate ourselves when we go against God. But I don't have a right to hate anybody. You know why? Because when God first looked at me, he should have hated me and put me in hell, and he didn't. So we ought to give the grace to the same people that God gave grace to you. But see, we like taking God's grace for ourselves. We just don't like giving it out to other people. We get our attitudes. We get our little stereotypes. We get our little mindsets. And we think that people ought to be in a little cookie-cutter mold. I got news for you. It doesn't work that way. People are people. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to say things that are dumb and do things that are stupid. I know you never do. In the Old Testament, there's a story in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, about somebody being a watchman. And in the literal sense, standing on the wall looking for the enemy to come. And they don't sound the alarm, and the enemy comes in, and many, many people get killed. And he tells them right there that the blood is on their hands. Now, that is a great 
practical lesson to you and me that we ought to be warning people of what's coming. It's, you're not responsible for making them get saved, but this church is responsible, as you do out there, as we're doing on through the Internet this morning, of warning people of what's coming. Because we don't want the blood on our hands. And it comes to the point where, you know, we don't have a right to deny anybody that. We as God's people, and you listen to me, we as God's people never have a right to deny grace to somebody. And the day you think you do, you're in trouble. Because there may be a day that God won't give you his grace. And you don't want that day to come. And the verse today is in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. Him talking to the nation of Israel, but he's talking to us too. And when ye spread forth your hands, this is a picture of somebody, oh God, give me this, oh God, give me that. Somebody praying, somebody asking for things, like Moses back there in Genesis and Exodus in his prayer life. When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eye from you. Yea, when you make your prayers, there it is, I will not hear. Why? Why? Because your hands are full of blood. And I'm telling you, this church is to be a watchman. My job for you is to be a watchman. For the people you work with is to be a watchman. We help each other by being watchmen for each other. This church is a watchman to the people that are listening, to the unsaved people that are here today or listening to my voice, or the people that, are, you know, that need to get into church. We are watchmen for you. And we help each other. Fourth thing. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Now this will be an easy one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God and a pulling down of strongholds. Those strongholds will be obviously strongholds in our lives. Casting down imagination. There it is. And every high thing that exalted itself against the what? Knowledge of God. God's truth. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Thinking and seeing things as he does. And then, of course, the great example of this that you can look up on your own and ask me Bible study if you want is Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 through 18. It shows you what the leaders of Israel were putting in their minds about God. The chambers of their imagery, that's your mind. Well, the fifth thing. God hates feet that be swift to running to mischief. Now, you want to compare this with Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, when you have the evangelist Stephen. And God sends him to the Ethiopian eunuch, and when God tells him, he runs swiftly. You're either going to run swiftly to do what God wants you to do through the door of opportunity, or you're going to run swiftly through the door of sin. But you're going to run through one of them. This whole country, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, you know, the world, where you work, and you see this to be true, everybody hates going to work on Monday. And you can't wait till Friday 
your last day of work, Friday night, Saturday, and, and Sunday. Why is that? Why you get, even get so excited, we get so excited, they can't wait for the weekend, they call Wednesday hump day. You're at the hump. You only got Thursday and Friday, and then the weekend. Why the weekend? Because people today are on a race course to go swift the mischief on the weekend. All the things that they want to do. They ain't in a swift, they ain't hump day because you're counting the days to go back to church. It's the days you can go to your parties, you can go down in power light, you can go do this, you can go to your favorite bar, you can hang out here, you can do that. Feet swift running to mischief. That's the world that we live in. And yet, it's, 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 it's not just about individuals. This whole country, this whole world is swiftly running to destruction. I'd say growing up and it living uh, born in 1950, I'd say from the 1950s, the 1970s or 80s, anyhow, this world was walking in the wrong direction and headed for destruction through mischief. I'd say from 1990 to the day we're in, we've quit running and we're running full break length out as fast as we can in the mischief and ending up in destruction. That's just the way it is, man. Well, the sixth thing. A false witness that speaketh live. Now, this is what the devil's family did at the first coming of Christ. They was a false witness against Christ. They lied against him, and then they crucified him. All for the purpose of getting rid of Christ. Let me change that. It wasn't just getting rid of Christ. It was getting rid of truth. He represented the truth just like you represent the truth. This church represents the truth. I represent the truth. And anybody in here that believes that book and wants to do what's right with it. And this is what they'll do to you too. They'll, they'll bear false witness against you, this church, any church. Because the bottom line is that, uh, you know, it's the truth. And they want to get rid of truth so they can keep their life going the way it's going, just like the scribes and the Pharisees didn't want to lose their jobs. And they knew that when Christ showed up, they were going to be out of a job. Well, the seventh thing. Now, I want you to notice that he said six things, and then he says, yea, the seventh is an abomination. He sets this one apart. Because certainly they're all bad and they're all terrible and they're all sin and they're all destructive. But brother, this is the worst one. And yet sadly to say, this one is the one that most of God's people are most familiar with. Yea, six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And then he goes down and he says, and he that soweth discord among the brethren... Now, the real tragedy here is these six things are what an unshaved man is. Emphasis on is. Not what he does. An unsaved man is these things. When you got saved and I got saved, we went from darkness to light. We no longer are these things. But if you see the comparison between 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians 5, 19 through 26, a Christian cannot be these things anymore but he can do them. They're called the sins of the flesh. Where an unsaved man is these things, whether he does them or not, a saved person can't be these things, but he can do these things when he gets out of fellowship and puts his spirit in the wrong place. And now the real tragedy here is 
sowing discord. Sowing discord among the brethren. That's God's people. That's where the devil gets his in in Christianity. This is where the devil gets his in in everything that he wants to destroy. You see, God pulls people together and, 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 and brings about unity. This church is a great example of that. There's a unity here that you don't find, but it isn't because you're all wonderful people. It isn't because I'm a wonderful pastor. It isn't because we have all the night. It's because we have a book that is truth. And that book, when you put it into your life and you make the Word of God in your life, God's way in your life, it promotes unity. Now, I'm not saying that we're not capable of having issues. You know all of you get attitudes about something or somebody sooner or later, about something. Most cases, it's stupid. But the devil, if you don't do what's right with it, and there is a process to do it, everybody gets an attitude about something. Everybody, somebody will turn somebody off the wrong way, say the wrong thing, they'll have a bad morning, or maybe they don't have the bad morning. Maybe you just wanted to say something nasty today. And I'm telling you right now, that's where the devil starts. And you know what keeps that from being fixed? Pride. You ain't going to tell me when the person does it that God doesn't convict you and say, you shouldn't have done that. And you know what you say? Up your nose with a rubber hose, God, that's what I felt like doing. Pride. Pride. And the devil says, thank you very much. That's all I needed. You just gave me my door. And that's what he does. You see, God promotes unity. He pulls people together. The devil promotes discord and pulling people apart. And you get to decide how you're going to be used. Now, I, I, I know I'm saying this, and as true as it is, it'll never happen across the board. It just never will because we're all human and we all make mistakes. And we, but I am telling you right now, if you want to know where the problems start in any church, with any people, in any family, in anything that happens, it's right here. And when you give the, door, give the devil an inch, he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it in time. And that's why the Bible says give no place to the devil. There should be no place for the devil in our lives. We ought to be focusing on the things that God loves and make those the premier things in our world for each other that we share with each other. Not the seven things that God hates. But I am telling you, this is where God's people are today, and it's a tragedy. And I know that we have a lot of people here that love the book and love each other, and we, we, we have a real unity here. Obviously, we wouldn't have what we have of God not giving it to us based on that. But I am telling you right now, you need to be a watchman. You need to be on your wall. And you need to let grace abound. Because the only thing that will keep it is you giving the same grace to others that God gave to you. And when we don't want to do that, we're in trouble. That's where pride comes in. That's where self-righteousness comes in. That's where it all begins to fester right there. And then you spend your whole day thinking nasty things about somebody. You send your whole life just mad. I, 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 I told you many, many times, the, if people can only drive you crazy when you give them the keys. And it's just that simple. And this is, a, this is the thing where God's people are today. 
sowing discord among the brethren. God's job is to give us unity. The devil's job is discord. And again, you want to, people are very easy to define patterns. You know, judge righteous judgment. You look at things. You know, uh, the tearing apart of God's unity. You just see when God's people spend more time in the seven things that God hates than they do in the things that God loves. You don't have to draw a colored picture. You don't need a road map for that. And yet he says it's an abomination. Now, abomination is, is, is a word in the Bible that's used in the Old Testament because it's dealing with Israel being separate from all them godless nations, abominable nations. So there, it, the word abomination is dealing with Israel staying away from the, those nations. And we as God's people don't need to stay away from nations, but there's some things that we need to stay away from. Let me just leave you with this, and we'll, we'll be done here this morning. The truth of God's Word will change you, but you and I will never change God's truth. You need to understand that. And a person saved or lost who will ignore God's truth can only deceive themselves because ignoring truth will not take it away, nor will it change it. And every morning when you get up and look in that mirror, truth will stare you right back in the face. This is why you need to develop the attitude of loving truth no matter how it hits you. The whole full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to, you know, but to, to the, who loves the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. Develop an attitude that when truth hits you, you allow it to do what God intended it to do and leave your pride out of it. Leave your attitude out of it. There's no room for it. There's no room for it. You know, the whole ministry that we are involved in is about people. Making people feel special. They may not be perfect. They may not always be right in what they do. They may certainly do some dumb things. But as long as they're here and they're continuing to grow, I never look for the bad in people. Yet I never forget there's bad in people. But I will never help you if all I ever do is focus on the negative things in your life. You have to look beyond that. In the ministry, you have to go beyond that. You have to look at what people can be with God. And if they would allow God to do that, you'll never get them where you want them to Listen to me. You'll never get people where you want them to be if you don't see where they need to go and then understand it's your job to help them get there. That's the ministry because the ministry is people. Nobody here is perfect. Everybody here has got their issues. I know I certainly do. And if I would minister to you on base of your, of your downside, we'd never get anything done. Can't do that. You have to focus on your God's people. God has a plan, and I do not help you fulfill that plan when all I do is talk about the bad things about you. We have to focus on the good side, what God is doing, and then be part of that.
You know, I have a couple of very simple rules of life with people. A while back, I gave you one, and everybody thought it was astounding. I myself just thought it was neat. I said, sometimes with people, you not only have to go the extra mile, but you have to go the extra smile. You have to be there for them. And then I follow this. And you need to learn this. See, I like this because I come down and make my points. As long as I don't fall off, catch me if I do. <laughs> Listen to me. Go home with this. People will forget what you say to them. People will forget what you do for them. People will never forget how you make them feel. They'll never forget how you make them feel. You can make them feel special or you can make them feel not special. You can go out of your way to encourage them or you can go out of your way to discourage them. They'll forget what you say. They'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget. Think about it in your own life. Somebody made you feel bad. Somebody made you feel good. You may never remember all they said, but you will remember that there was a time in their life how they made you feel. My job, your job, is to make every one of you feel as special as you are to God, even with your imperfections. That's what has to be. We're going to be dismissed here, have a word of prayer. Sit around and visit. If you want to go through the church, we'll